You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome pediatric occupational therapist Laura Pedix to the show. Laura is an OT based out of Southern California, and she is a mom to a neurodivergent four-year-old. I invited Laura on the show to talk through the difference between tantrums and meltdowns. As a mom with both neurodivergent and neurotypical children, I can clearly see a difference between the two. And today's episode, we're going to walk you through really unpacking, defining what a tantrum versus meltdown is, how we can support our child in these states, but also ourselves when trying to stay regulated and manage these big meltdowns and behaviors. And we wrap up and summarize the interview talking about unrealistic versus more realistic expectations in these moments when we're facing these meltdowns and big feeling outbursts with our children. I could have talked to Laura all day long about these things. So this is a really great practical episode and it really helps to alleviate the shame that you might feel if you find yourself facing these behaviors day after day in parenthood with your child. Just because they are melting down or having these big behaviors doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. So let's hear this practical and very encouraging episode with Laura. Do you ever feel like you just want to hide in a dark, quiet closet? You are not alone. As a mom of three boys, I know what it's like to feel overstimulated, touched out, and easily triggered. As moms, we often don't get a chance to turn down the noise, walk away, or find a moment to regroup and recharge our own batteries. But we don't have to live in constant overload. We can learn the skills to manage our own responses to the noise, mess, and touch. We can stay calm and grounded so that we can be more present and connected without feeling like we're always in fight or flight mode. On June 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, Dr. Reem, Psyched Mummy, and I are holding a live workshop, Managing Overstimulation in Motherhood. You'll learn why you get so overstimulated, how to recognize your triggers, and the simple changes you can make to your environment that can help. We'll also teach you practical tips to stay calm and walk through your own personalized overstimulation plan so you can manage your reactions in and out of the moment. Busy momming and can't make it live? No problem. You'll get lifetime access to the recording so you can watch it at your own pace and revisit the workshop whenever you need. It's time to take charge of your senses instead of letting them control you. Visit happyasamother.co slash overstimulation to register today. That's happyasamother.co slash overstimulation. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today between your little and running your own platform and having your own podcast. I'm sure that you've got lots on the go. So the fact that you prioritize being here with us is uh, really meaningful to me. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. I love talking about all of this stuff. I could talk about this all day. So I love any chance to talk to someone else about it. It's interesting because this is a like mom-centered platform, right? And I often work with moms on their experience when working with their child through a tantrum. And I feel like we're going to kind of do both worlds here today where we can share some of the strategies and talk about like how to manage some of the kids part and understand the differences. And then also how we manage from our perspective in even just how we place these behaviors in our mind and what they mean and what a meltdown is versus a like a tantrum and and what those needs look like. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. 
I'm curious, though, before even jumping in, like your story and how did you work your way into being on Instagram, sharing about sensory processing, sharing from your OT perspective about tantrums and behavior? Yeah. So I am a pediatric occupational therapist and I was an OT before I had my daughter. So I always knew as an OT, I was like, I can't wait to be a mom. I'm going to do all the things. I know all the mm. milestones. I know all the activities. My child is going to like meet all of them and you know everything that you say before you're a mom. And I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to do that thing. And I'm like smiling as I say it. So I'm like, oh man, that was cute. That was so <laughs> cute when you had all of those little plans, you know, and your plan goes out the window right from like even your like birth plan already. That is the first thing that goes out the window. And I'm like, wow. And as a person who is a planner and likes to be in control of things, being a mom has been the most humbling, frustrating, have to be flexible type of thing, which is really hard. So as an OT, I went into motherhood expecting like, you know, this is what the textbook says. This is what you do. Mm. And this is what can set your child up for success. And I did all of it. I did every sensory play activity. I did all of the tummy time. I did everything. Mm. And I was still having a really hard time with my child's behaviors. She was always kind of a fussier baby as an infant, but through every stage of her early infancy, through early toddler years, she was really hard. And that's when I realized that I think I might have a neurodivergent child, a child who has a different brain wiring. She was having mm. very, very intense meltdowns. I'm talking 90-minute meltdowns multiple times mm -hmm. a day, peeing in her pants after she was potty trained, banging her head, biting her finger. I mean, I took her to the emergency room at one point because I thought there was something like medically wrong by how much she was melting down. Mm -hmm. That as an OT was like the most out of control I had felt as a mom as well. So right. that experience really connected me more. It made me a really good OT, a much better OT than I could have been from mentorship, from books, from certifications, being a parent. And then once I realized what it was like to parent a differently wired child, and then when the pandemic happened, we all kind of rushed to Instagram. I already had Instagram as the OT butterfly, but I was creating content more for therapists. I was creating activities and things for them to do in the clinic. And then when the clinic shut down and everyone was at home, I was starting to detail my story and journey more with my daughter and realized how many parents were resonating with this and how many parents needed support like ASAP. So mm. I started shifting and talking to parents right probably around like June of 2020. And since then, I focused all of that. And it's been the most rewarding thing to empower parents and also to show my vulnerable side about it that I'm struggling to. And I think parents really connect with the fact that even a professional, an OT mm. who knows all of the ins and outs of development and how to quote, prevent certain things. I still have mm -hmm. a child who's neurodivergent. So that takes the responsibility and the guilt and the shame off of you as the parent to know that our kids just have differently wired brains and we can still support them. But even the OT struggles with this all the time. Yeah. Like I would feel a real sense of like solidarity in coming to you. Cause like with my one, I've got three boys and one um, and they're still quite young, but one who we have identified as like ADHD or neurodivergent. And like sometimes, and I, I worked in a group family psychology practice with like ADHD, behavioral challenges in conjunction with like also OTs. And I was in this space as well before becoming a mother. And now I'm parenting three children, one of whom is neurodivergent. And like sometimes I I'm sitting in this meltdown or tantrum, just like no one can fathom this experience, right? And so there would be a real sense, I feel like from my perspective as a parent coming to you being like, okay, like she gets it. Like she knows what this really can look like at home, you know? Yeah. It's that really like we're part of the club. Like I, it's like this yeah. underlying like I see that meme in my head of Jennifer Lawrence doing the Hunger Games, like the kiss the th like the three fingers, <laughs> where it's yeah. like, I got you, mom. Like I could see them dealing with the real, real intense meltdowns. And it, you're right, like 
I always say, I'm like, I feel like there was false advertisement for what motherhood was going to be like. Hmm. Like people Mm -hmm. say it's hard, but I find that a lot of, at least in the media, a lot of parenting and specifically like motherhood experiences are shown as like, yes, it's really hard, but it's so worth it and it's rewarding and it's challenging. So they always like sandwich it between a lot Mm -hmm. of this positive, which of course I see that part. But for me right now at my daughter's age and the things that we're struggling with, I was not expecting to have this hard of an experience as a mom and admitting that, that I am not enjoying being a mom right now, despite the endless amount of love that I have for my daughter and that I would do anything for her. I'm not always enjoying motherhood right now. And I think it's because I went into it expecting something different and also just because I did not expect this at all. So that's been something that I connect with a lot of parents about too, just giving them the permission to say that it's okay to not enjoy some parts of it. Hmm. Yeah, we certainly have to reconcile the expectations that we had with like the reality we find ourselves parenting every day. And I've had conversations with Dr. Sophie Brock. She's a sociologist out of Australia. She did her research in families with special needs. I've had conversations with her and I've been digging through some research lately on like satisfaction in parenting. And parents with kids with special needs or like strong behavioral challenges rate parenting as less satisfying. And there's other measures and maybe it's fulfilling in the long term and different things, but it certainly really does take a toll. There is an invisible load of managing these behaviors that is maybe different than, for sure different than I can even compare to my like neurotypical sons who I don't have to engage in this with, right? Right. Yes. And that's the same thing that I always talk about on my Instagram when I will talk about my day-to-day and the 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 invisible load and the extra steps I have to take just to make sure that we have a somewhat smooth morning and it's not even the smoothest. And the Mm -hmm. things that I have to think and account for, for every next thing we do that like, I'm like, parents of neurotypical kids don't have to think about this or they can just easily do X, Y, Z. But I have to think twice about what's going to happen tomorrow if I do this today or is this going to end in a meltdown? Or like, this sounds really fun. Everyone else is doing that. And I want her to enjoy that. But is that going to be too overstimulating for her? Mm -hmm. There's just this constant, like second guessing and like, choose your own ending book. Like if I go down A, what's going to happen down that if I go down B. And these are just things that parents of neurotypical kids don't, don't really have to think about. So sometimes they do commiserate with other parents about that extra invisible kind of burden that we have. Hmm. I think that it's helpful. It's helpful to know we're not alone in that experience, right? Yeah. Because sometimes like we work with a pediatrician and sometimes speaking with her and I'm like, but do you get it though? <laughs> you know, so there is that solidarity piece. Yeah. I have some friends who try really hard. And this is why I found so many, I feel closer to friends on the internet, on Instagram, mm. because I feel like I've created my village of people who, who really get it. But some of my in-person friends who are parents to neurotypical kids, at the very beginning, before I even had Instagram, I would be like venting about like what we're going through. And they're like, oh yeah, we had a really bad meltdown this morning about shoes. It was like five whole minutes of like crying. And I was like, oh, I would love a five minute meltdown. I, like this was yeah. in the peak of it where we were having 90 minute long, like, like, oh, some of my darkest days. And I have like a whole series of this on my podcast where I like detail it. It's like, gives me like PTSD, like how hard we really mm-hmm. had it in those days mm-hmm. because the really, really intense, intense meltdowns are really hard to see your child go through it. And then also just as a parent feeling like the most helpless, just as like a standing by person, just watching this happen and you can't really do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So like, let's place these on a continuum then, or let's, let's hash these out a little bit in terms of differentiating tantrum versus meltdown or or are there sort of like degrees on this continuum? Because I feel like I have three boys. I can compare each of their personalities and their needs differently. Totally. Right? Mm-hmm. And I can see, okay, let's define them first. Yes. Why don't we define them? Yeah. And I, I want to start out by saying that it definitely depends who you talk to. There are some professionals who like to use them interchangeably. There are some, a lot of them, particularly myself. I also talk with Dr. Anne Louise Lockhart. We both agree on this. That We believe there is a difference between tantrums and meltdown. And I want to talk about why I think it's important, but then I'll also define it. Yes. And for me as a mom who, again, it, that experience was exactly it, where like I'm venting with moms 
and we're all saying the same thing. My child has meltdowns. My child has meltdowns. So as a new mom, if I don't know anything about OT or, or sensory processing or childhood development, and I'm in this new set of moms, like at a, like a mom meetup group or whatever, and we're all like, yeah, my kid has meltdowns. And I'm like, yeah, my kid has meltdowns every single day. And we're all just calling them meltdowns. And I hear everyone else saying it too. And I'm like, oh, must be normal. Then I just mm. got to keep dealing with it. Like they deal with it and they're fine. They're going out to all their birthday parties and restaurants and living life. And they deal with meltdowns all the time too. Why is it so hard for me? I don't get it. We're both having meltdowns. Then when you dig deeper, it's like, ah, 90 minute meltdowns compared to like five minute meltdowns. So that's just like Mm -hmm. one of the first pieces of a parent identifying that daily meltdowns, like really long, intense meltdowns, which I'll define in a second, I would consider you would need to seek some professional support for that. I would consider Mm -hmm. that deviating from the typical toddler development, which we know tantrums is a healthy part of development. And I'm going to insert this one piece here, and then we'll also define it as well. But I always say this, that neurotypical kids can experience meltdowns Mm -hmm. and tantrums. Mm -hmm. Neurodivergent kids can experience tantrums and meltdowns. I've seen my daughter have what I call plain vanilla tantrums. I've seen them. Mm. They're like this. And I'm just like, whew, that was like a breeze. I didn't even have to like flinch. Like it was over as soon as it began for me, even if it's a five, 10 minute one, that's like nothing in our book, right? I've seen her have that, but she is more prone to meltdowns. And a lot of kids with sensory processing challenges are more prone to it, but both neurotypical and neurodivergent can experience both. Mm -hmm. A neurotypical child having intense meltdowns does not automatically mean there is some diagnosis that needs to be uncovered. So how I like to talk about tantrums and meltdowns is Tantrums have a clear goal. They are really angry that they have to leave the park. They really, really wanted that cookie that you said no to. They wanted to sit in that chair that now their sibling got to first. Something very clear, very, very clear, where if you had the opportunity and you responding to that need right away and you're like, okay, fine, here's the cookie that you wanted, or okay, fine, switch chairs, or okay, fine, we could stay five more minutes. And then they like wipe their tears and they're happy, right? That is a very clear need that was very easily met and tantrum is done. Maybe it lasts like five, 10 minutes. I would say no longer than 20 minutes. And I've spoken to other professionals who agree that that seems to be kind of the threshold that we talk about. Hmm. Clear goal and then easy to recover. Like wipe tears, got what I wanted, got what I needed. Or even if mom or dad held a boundary, maybe they're connecting with them and then still tears done, like regulating pretty quick. Mm, mm -hmm. Meltdowns have less of a clear goal. Sometimes they can stem from being sensory overstimulated. So like it could be clear where like, you know, the toilet flushed and that, and your child is sensory sensitive. So they cover their ears, send them to fight or flight. But a lot of the times meltdowns in kids with sensory processing challenges or even kids with anxiety are more of like an accumulation of either like unexpected changes in their day or an accumulation of routine changes or sensory inputs throughout their day. So like at the end of a school day or maybe coming home from a birthday party and the trigger sometimes right before a meltdown or the thing that happens can really look like it's going to be a tantrum. So I'm going to explain. Mm, That was my question for you. That was my question. That's usually what it is at our house. It's usually something, if you look right before our meltdowns at our house and you took like a snapshot, you're like, she's just trying to control you. She's, Mm. She's saying that she wants the... So I'll give a very clear recent example. It was breakfast. Mornings are really hard for us. And she has clothing sensitivities and she has some school-related anxieties. So more school mornings are like, whew, really hard in this house. Mm-hmm. Sat her down at the table. She was already dysregulated. So her, her brain and nervous system was not already regulated because this was the middle of her week. So the Monday and Tuesday before have already filled her nervous system with a lot of dysregulating stuff that she has to endure just as a normal week of school. Nothing out of the ordinary, Mm -hmm. but school is overstimulating for her. Clothes are overstimulating. So we sit down at the table and then she says, my chair is too far away from the table. Okay. So I oblige, push the chair in. Well, now I'm too close. Okay. Push a little bit far. That's too far. It gone on like a few times and that's when it in my head, I'm like, okay, 
we're about to enter meltdown mode. That is not a clear mm-hmm. goal. Even she doesn't know what she wants. She's like, yes. I explain yeah. it like they're looking for a fight almost. Like they just have to release it. Mm-hmm. Where if it was a tantrum, clear goal, met the goal, done. Right. But then after that, mm, yeah. once she sort of like got over that, then the oatmeal was too hot. Not hot enough. You did too big of a scoop. Oh, it fell. Like every little thing, one after another, where it was clear it was not about the oatmeal. It was not about the chair. It was not about where she was sitting. She was very dysregulated. She didn't know what she wanted. She just knew she felt out. And then that was like like a 30-minute meltdown. Mm-hmm. So meltdowns are less clear of a goal, even though it may look like it. There's a lot of underlying emotions and anxiety that contribute to it. And how tantrums can end, I feel like, pretty abruptly, pretty quickly, and they can move on with their day. Meltdown kids typically have this like period of like a hangover after or like continued moodiness or edginess throughout the day. And they definitely last, they can last a lot longer than 20 minutes. I've spoken to parents who have dealt with like a couple hours worth of meltdown, like nothing you Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. nothing you say or do can end the meltdown. It is all up to your child's brain to regulate. You can try to support them as best you can, but typically you just got to like buckle up and ride it out when it comes to a meltdown. I'm so clearly seeing the difference and I'm so able to apply it to each of my children. And with our neurodivergent son, it is that looking for a fight type of bit. It's okay. So we did a episode on after school restraint collapse Mm -hmm. a couple months ago. And if the meltdown doesn't happen upon entering the threshold of the house, mm-hmm. I know at some point in our evening routine, it is just a matter of time before something happens. It was the case that it would immediately happen upon seeing me getting in the house. We'd flop to the floor. It would be because I didn't help him take off his coat. I didn't help him take off his boots or I didn't, he didn't want what was for dinner. Yep. And, and like you said, it felt like this never ending moving target that I just couldn't get ahead of. It's like whack-a-mole. Right. You're like, Got that one. Nope. Right. Here's another one. Like, there's no. Because, like, it makes sense what you're saying is like, he doesn't even know what he needs in the moment. And I think that when we're thinking about this in the terms of mothering, can we talk about how incredibly frustrating that is? Because if I'm, I'm trying all the things I know to try, or even just being mm. and not trying to fix, mm. even just being, and it's a very powerless kind of position to sit back in, hey? It's a very powerless, that's a perfect way to explain it. And then if you yourself as the mother or parent, primary caregiver Mm -hmm. in that space also has sensory triggers or like for me, it's anxiety. So it is just Mm -hmm. this, I'm constantly trying to keep myself regulated. And as you know, I would say in the past year, I've been really going down this journey of trying to use conscious discipline, being a gentle parent to her, which in and of itself is something really, really hard to master. <laughs> right. But like yes. when you have a neurodivergent kid because you need the compassion, you need the empathy, and you're like, this just this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. I find myself so much trying to just channel all of that. And it is near impossible some days. And some days I do better than others. And that's what I just try to remember. But yeah, sitting in there and like you said, just being, just existing, just like breathing the same air that they breathe. I feel like I'm going to breathe wrong. Like walking on eggshells doesn't even describe it, but that's the closest thing that I can describe it to on certain days. Mm -hmm. And as Mm -hmm. the primary caregiver, you know, you have very clear warning signs or triggers. You're like, oh, this is going to turn into something. I can just tell by the way she asks something or what she asks. Like when she's trying to pick a fight, I know clear sign. She'll wake up and say something out of the ordinary, like, I want to have birthday cake for breakfast, like where she knows Mm. the answer is going to be no, like, there's no way I can Mm. fulfill that, that I'm like, Mm -hmm. all right, she needs me to pop the balloon, or like, she needs me to poke the bear, she needs to release it, she's asking for it. Mm -hmm. So I literally at this point now, I started to have to wake on school mornings, I have to wake her up like 20 minutes before our normal routine, mm-hmm. I basically build in time for a meltdown. Yeah. I have to do it. That's the only way that I can stay regulated because I panic. One of my triggers of anxiety is like being on time for things. Mm-hmm. So that really gets my like heart racing. Like I really have anxiety about being on time. So 
in order for me to stay regulated on school mornings, I need to give myself extra time. So I wake her up early so that I know if she has a meltdown, I can take the time to like sit through it with her, help her in the best way I can rather than just like meeting fire with fire and like rushing us through it. So that's yeah, that's one of the things that I've had to do. Yeah, like planning for it, making some space, knowing, especially because yours sound like they're in the mornings because of this like school aversion piece where mm-hmm. ours tend to be like coming in from school in the afternoon. Yeah. And with my son, we know how the day or the morning is going to go based on like how he emerges from his room in the morning. <laughs> Like not a word of a lie from how he gets up to go pee, like when we hear his steps and what he's doing, we know what kind of a morning we're in for. It's either like, good morning, mommy, and like comes in and it's like, you know, a greeting and and then off on his way to get breakfast or whatever. Or there's like huffing and puffing and we're stomping about. And then there's like a walking up and just like backhanding his brother for no reason. And it's just, we call it like Mr. Grumpies or whatever. Like he's just, we got a case of the Grumpies and we got to figure out what we're going to do with that. Yeah. And it's a really, I don't know if freeing is the right word, validating something to hear you also tell your story in the same way about how like it's, these things aren't happening because we're doing anything wrong, right? Like as parents, these things are happening because our children's little brains are trying to make sense of all of the things going on for them. And it sounds like there is like an acceptance that needs to happen around, like there had to be an acceptance for you to be able to make space and plan for this in your day, right? Like there has to be some reconciliation we come to that this is our child's temperament and this is what we're dealing with right now and and then planning around that. Absolutely. You got that exactly. It took me a while to get there, but once I had that piece with my own journey with anxiety, something I learned with my therapist is like, instead of like, Try not to be worried about things. Don't think about it. It's like, well, what happens if we think about it and we just accept it? It takes less effort to accept something and tolerate that feeling and be okay with it than it does to just constantly trying to be fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. And that's one piece that when I start consulting with parents or coaching parents, that's one of the first areas I work on. I can tell sort of where they're at in that journey mm-hmm. based on like what they, you know, like we're having a really hard time with this and we want him to just be able to X, Y, Z, right? Which a lot of parents mm-hmm. either are comparing it to how they grew up. Like, oh, well, I grew up, I was just up and dressed in 15 minutes or comparing to their like neighbors who have kids that can do X, Y, Z or something they saw on TV or other siblings or other kids that they have mm-hmm. that are neurotypical. Well, my oldest had no problem. So it is definitely a journey to acceptance that mm-hmm. your child's brain is different. Different does not mean bad. Different is just different. We might need to reframe the way that we approach things. And there does need to be some reflection on being okay with that. And once you're there, it's like, okay. I know that my child is a spirited child. I know she is strong-willed. I know that she has sensory differences. I know that this makes her more emotional. Hmm. Once I know that, it's not really in the cards right now for me to expect a smooth morning every single morning. Hmm. I need to just be ready. I like to say it more like be ready to accept these big feelings rather than like expect meltdowns every day or like you're never going to have an easy morning. Like I try not to go down that route of like, this is never going to end and this is going to be terrible and like expecting Mm -hmm. the worst, but also in a space of like, this is your child. This is part of this is her temperament, which is what you're right. Like Mm -hmm. I could see parts of like my own personality and my husband's personality mixed with the way that her brain is wired. And it's just on some days it's brilliance and creativity. And some days it is really paralyzing for like anything that she does in her day, which then has Mm -hmm. an effect on us. But definitely that acceptance piece is like one of the first steps where parents can already make progress without even intervening. Once you just like have that, it kind of like unlocks a whole other area of like progress and things that you could see in your daily life. As you're talking, it reminds me of comments that my husband and I have said to each other, or I've heard from other parents too. It's like, 
but we do this every day or you did this yesterday or you liked this food yesterday and, and now it's it's like it's not even just comparison to others but it also can be like the comparison to like how they handled a moment to like totally. how they're now not handling a moment because totally. it's like oh if you've performed this and done this i now have a sense that you're capable of doing mm. this or you are you know and then now i'm hand over hand helping you brush your teeth cuz we are still in our 60, 70 minute meltdown before bed. Yeah. And it's like, but this is the routine that happens every night, you know? And so sometimes it's hard to wrap your brain around that piece. It is really hard. And then what I always talk to parents about is like, I'm like, have you always been at your 100% game every single day of your life? Are Mm. you always able to super co-regulate your child? Or are there times that you yell, even though you know better and you know, there's that time where you are able to sit through a 45 minute meltdown and sit and rock through them and do all of the things, give them their sensory tools. And you have this perfect little, like, I call them sitcom moments when it like, it's just like nicely packaged. Like Mm, (laughs) you can like, mm -hmm. everybody can watch me have this successful little moment. I have those moments, but then I also have moments where I can't do it. It is very Mm -hmm. dependent on your state of regulation and regulation is a state. It's not something that like you are always dysregulated or you are always regulated there. It goes up and down. So I try to remember that like a lot, like my daughter teaches me things about myself all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm piecing together my childhood. I'm piecing together my own journey with anxiety. And I'm like, the way she thinks about that was like, I think about it too, but it's just more relevant to like adult stuff. But I'm like, I get that way too. Mm -hmm. And it's just frustrating. And I'm like, and I'm an adult and she's like four, her brain is four years old. Like that is it. And we expect Mm -hmm. so much. And I'm saying this to anyone out there who's listening that maybe this is a light bulb for you, but I'm saying this, I say this to myself all the time and it doesn't always seep in. But yeah, that's the example I give. I'm like, are you able to be the best parent 100%? Are you always Mm -hmm. able to access that part of your brain that you were able to do like last week? No. Right. Well, you spoke about being a gentle parent and parenting neurodivergent children, respectful parent, like responsive parent, whatever sort of label conscious parent we're going to use here. Yes, there's so many. Yep. Yeah. All sort of along the same vein of just sort of this responsive, respectful type of parenting. Yeah. And it's like as though you're a fly on the wall of a conversation I was having just yesterday where it was like, I can respectful parent my neurotypical children all day long. (laughs) Like it is a different playing field. It is a different thing altogether, right? A whole other ball game that I feel like is not talked about enough. Yeah. And so I hear from a lot of neurodivergent parents who really, really want to go this route of gentle parenting, authoritative parenting, I guess is the more objective term, right? Mm-hmm. So there's authoritative, authoritarian. I know, and I always get them mixed up, which one is which. Authoritative yeah. is the strong boundaries, like loving, respectful yes. boundaries, right? Yes. So so that's the most like objective umbrella term, but it all encompasses conscious discipline, gentle parenting, all mm-hmm. of that. So, but I hear from a lot of parents of neurodivergent kids who are like, I feel like a failure because I hear all of these like scripts and things to do on what to do when your child is having XYZ behavior yeah. and I can't do it. And I'm like, that's because it's like 10 times, it's like level 10 for us. Yeah. Like it is really, really hard. And the other piece that I say that I've learned after talking to a lot of experts in this realm of conscious discipline is that I think sometimes parents think that the goal of those things is to like stop a behavior. Mm. Like I'm doing gentle parenting, but it's not like working. And I'm like, well, it's not really supposed to work to like stop a behavior. Mm. It's supposed to work on your relationship between yourself and your child and teaching them like long-term skills. But it doesn't mean that if you gentle parent your child about hitting that they're going to stop hitting. Right. It's a really, really valid point. I think that approaching conscious discipline and leading with relationship and rapport is my one saving grace with my neurodivergent son. Yeah. Because that keeps us in stride in moments when we're not in meltdown. And like, he can't figure out if he wants me, doesn't want me in meltdowns. Like it's a cluster F at times, to be honest. It's like, he doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't want me to be there. But if I go, he freaks out. And it's just like, oh yeah, we try and work through it. But if it wasn't for the fact that we have built this like language between the two of us, mm-hmm. I yep. I don't even know where I would be in terms of my like rapport and ability to stay patient in these moments, you know, because it is Absolutely. it's intense. Yeah. 
that language piece and having a way to talk to your child about their meltdowns or even your meltdowns during their meltdowns is the best thing that you can have. And I will say I'm not an expert yet in gentle parenting. I'm still practicing it. That's why it's a practice, right? I'm still trying it, but I'm getting very good at apologizing Mm -hmm. and reflecting. Repairing. Yeah. Repairing. I've gotten very good at like knowing when the best time is for that. Like I know there's good times in her day when she's more receptive to those kinds of like talking out lessons. Mm -hmm. And I know what words she resonates with when I talk about it. And I've seen her then start to apply that. So I'm like, you know what? My goal is not going to be for her to not have meltdowns or to not hit or to not yell or kick. My goal is for that eventually she can know when it's time to apologize for hurting someone or apologize for something she did. And if I can do that, then I don't have to feel so much pressure about being 100% on like every meltdown and like staying through it. Like I miss like backup plan, right? And like I, at the very least, if I can't do this and I have this. So in my head, if I can't make it through this and I yell, I can at least like apologize later. And I know that she knows about the apology and she accepts it and she's very forgiving and she's very loving and resilient. And not only can I repair, but even in that repair moment, it's still a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. So there's still so much more to it. So that takes the pressure off trying to be perfect in every meltdown. Like there's a point in a meltdown where I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. Like I buckle up. I'm like, I've got like my best parenting hat on. And then sometimes I hit like a threshold, 20 minute, 25 minutes. I'm like, I'm going to take my hat Mm. off and I'm probably going to have to repair later. But like, I will say something, something will come out that I don't mean to, that is out of my control, just like when our kids are right? Because my fight or flight has been activated at the same time, Mm -hmm. depending on my day or what's happening. But then I I will always know like, well, at least I can say sorry later. And that's been a very eye-opening and very valuable part of our mother-daughter relationship Mm -hmm. with the neurodivergent piece included. Yeah. Psyched Mummy and I actually have a free masterclass on repair after we've ruptured. And in that masterclass, we just hosted it live um, earlier this week. And the the free replay is is accessible for people. Oh, cool. But I call out in there, like, as a neurodivergent mom mothering a neurodivergent son, mm-hmm. the amount of repairs I have to do between him and I than with any other dynamic in my life is far more and above, you know, and that's okay because we get back on track and we get back on the same page and we heal and we stitch it up and we move through it. I feel like Mm -hmm. this is such a really core, interesting piece of this conversation here because I hear a lot of shame from moms especially those who are either neurodivergent themselves or have neurodivergent children, sensory issues, ADHD, ASD, like whatever. And like why they're feeling angry, why they're feeling rage, why they're more reactive, especially in the wake of like gentle parenting when to be ragey feels other than that. Like it feels the opposite or counter to what Mm -hmm. we so badly want to embody in those moments. And so I think that it's so important to acknowledge that you are also human. You do get angry. You have emotions. But like you said, oh my gosh, the power of repair, when we can really harness it, learn how to do it correctly, we can move through those moments, come out the other side like unscathed and if not like stronger than before the rupture even happened, right? Absolutely. And it really goes a long way in teaching your child how to understand emotions in other people Mm. and in themselves. And it allows you the opportunity to separate emotions from actions. And it gives you, you know, I still love you. I was mad. My body was out of control. Mm. And then it also, what I love about repairs is it brings me down also on her level. Oh, mommy makes mistakes too, Mm -hmm. right? Even teachers should repair with their class. I'm sure teachers lose their control all the time because it's so hard with the whole class of kids. Mm -hmm. But it gives my daughter the chance to be the expert to me. So I'm like, oh, mommy really lost my control yesterday. Do you remember what happened? Yeah, you you yelled a lot Mm. and you slammed a door or she'll say something like that. I'm like, yeah, I was feeling so mad. I wonder what I should do next time when I'm feeling that mad. I don't even bring it back to Mm. her. I was mad because you didn't listen to me. I don't, that's like a separate time Mm -hmm. of place about 
talking about the original issue, right? But I am in that moment in my repair is my moment to show her that I can make a mistake and that she can even help me problem solve next time I'm feeling frustrated, which shows her that she has these ideas to do it too. She can maybe help friends in the future do that. She can understand maybe when she's in relationships in the future, it just gives them a more well-rounded opportunity to think and talk about emotions and actions outside of themselves. So it's not always like the parent or adult being like, your emotions are out of control and like always lecturing to our mm-hmm. kids, right? But it really makes it more of like, everyone has really big feelings. Mm-hmm. Everyone loses control sometimes. We need to repair those moments. And like, it just makes it way more like manageable to talk about on like everybody's on the same level, which is really powerful to do when everything else in your day is adults leading everything and like telling kids how to do things and being the experts in everything. It's really cool for the kids to be able to join in that discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I appreciate that you wove that piece into this conversation because I think it's such a common pattern or the frequency at which we're going through these ruptures and repairs with our neurodivergent children is just going to be the volume of those is higher than with my neurotypical kids. And it's okay because we're repairing and we're still maintaining that relationship and connection. So I'm curious, okay, you're like planning in your day for a meltdown to happen. It's kind of like we're like, we're edged up, we're egged on, we're like looking for a fight. So we're not able to prevent these meltdowns. Is that what I'm hearing? (laughs) You're hearing it right. So (laughs) there's going to be a, a lot of meltdowns where the trigger is very clear. Like for me, I know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday mornings when she has school, I'm like, I know those are like high chance... hundred percent chance of meltdown. Like, if yeah. it, like I know that it's like, this is a very sensitive time for us. Or if you're like, oh, we're like every time we come home from soccer practice or every time there's school or something where it's very specific that, you know, you need to like sort of prepare. There are mm-hmm. meltdowns where you can sort of predict or at least anticipate where you could spend some time in the before a meltdown trying to make them be a little bit more successful. So for some kids, transitions are hard, right? Mm -hmm. So if you know transitioning from like picking up blocks to like going to dinner table is going to be hard, then that I would consider the before the meltdown where Mm -hmm. you have like a few more chances to give them reminders, remind them of their tools, remind them of what's expected, remind them of what's not expected. Like hitting and screaming is not okay, but you can still be mad or whatever you want to insert there. Mm. I imagine it like you're going down a freeway and you see an exit sign, like exit in one mile, like that's like meltdown is going to happen. And you're like, okay, I got to get ready to get over. This is your preparation. Mm. And you can try everything to get over the lanes to exit, but maybe you can't get there in time. So maybe your preparation before meltdown doesn't help. And then your child like enters meltdown. And then I imagine I'm like, I passed my exit. I'm like, now I just got to like stay on the freeway until mm, the next exit comes. Mm. You can't do anything. I'm like, that's when I buckle up and I'm like, all right, now I'm in meltdown mode. So yeah, there are sometimes you can try to curb it, try to prevent it. I don't like to talk about like ending meltdowns or stopping the meltdowns or preventing them as much, especially when you have a neurodivergent child, because like I said, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. And I've experienced this before where we've like skirted around meltdowns, like tiptoed around it. And then only for it to happen later in the day, like way bigger. Like it just like was there Mm -hmm. anyway, right? So sometimes it still comes out. But I like to say that you can help either like decrease the intensity of a meltdown or maybe have it bounce back faster if you can still like insert some of your support tools like before it happens. But once you enter meltdown mode, yes, you're kind of like in this area of meltdown city. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with like a Dr. Ashley conscious boundary setting. We're going like way back into the early like 15s, 20s of of the podcast. Uh And she was talking about how sometimes, like you said, I want ice cream for breakfast. Sometimes kids will make demands so outrageous that they know will get a hard stop because their nervous system needs to like reset itself. And that's sort of what I understood you saying. It's like, they know they can't have it or they know they're pushing the limit or they know that, you know, they make it in trouble with my one son. He knows he's not allowed to hit his brothers and yet he will out of the blue walk up and just like smack someone. And it's this sensory reset or something he's almost looking for or or like a nervous system reset. Are there things that we can be doing 
in these moments from like a helping to reset the nervous system perspective that might be helpful? Yeah. So when I whenever I coach parents through meltdowns, I talk about it in four phases. Mm. There's the before the meltdown, which I talked about. Sometimes this isn't even an option for you, right? Because like some meltdowns you don't even expect. Right. Or like it's happening when they're on their way home from school. And like, yeah, and you can't like, really do much. Whatever. Yeah. The anticipation of coming home or whatever it is, the transition in itself. Yeah. So there's there's some meltdowns where you can't do the before, but I teach parents about the before meltdowns. Then there's the during meltdown. Then there's the after meltdown. Then there's between the meltdowns is what I like mm. to call it. Right. Mm-hmm. So before meltdown, if you can predict it, you're going to want to remind them of some sensory tool, sensory strategies. And what you call like resetting the nervous system is sounds a lot just like sensory regulation. Right. Mm. So, and that looks different for everybody. If you have a child who has a high threshold, high needs, for movement and body pressure and joint compressions, they probably will want a lot of like jumping and bear hugs. But you might have a child who is tactile or touch sensitive and they don't like being touched and they just want quiet and that's how their nervous system resets. So it really depends on each child. So if you can't do that before the meltdown, during the meltdown, I always talk about Number one goal, safety, because some meltdowns are so intense that like you just go into management mode, like make sure if you have any infants or other siblings, if you have breakables, like depending how intense the meltdowns are, you have Mm -hmm. to make sure the environment is safe for your child. Like I even coach parents on creating like a safe destruction zone almost where it's like soft padded, can throw a pillow as hard as they want or like scribble with chalk as hard as they want, break ice cubes outside in the backyard, like something where they can get a lot of the aggression out safely. Hmm. Because this is not a time to be like, stop moving your body, stop hitting. You want them to stop hitting their brother. But if they need to hit something, it's better to tell them to redirect it to this pillow or hit the bed or hit this like weighted levy, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So safety first, and then try to create an environment if you can that is supportive to what their regulation needs are. Now, as you kind of talked about earlier, our kids kind of like don't even know what they want. And when there's a lot of language of like, do you want me to stay? No. Do you want me to go? No. Like if you ask any sort of question, chances are their answers are not going to be logical. They'll either say Mm. yes to like two different things or no to the same thing or like just not answer back, right? Because we know that when you are having such an intense meltdown, your language centers and your logic centers are pretty much like offline. Mm -hmm. So you can't really expect them to understand lessons or concepts or give like a very intelligible response, especially depending on the age of your child or your child's speaking abilities, right? Mm -hmm. Every, especially neurodivergent kids, some kids are non-speaking. But if your child has the receptive language at that time, one of my special tricks that one of the reels went like viral on Instagram for this hack and parents love it is um I give my daughter two choices and I say, do you need space? And I'm holding out my hand for anyone that can't hear me. I hold my hand out like in front of her, like my palm facing her. And I'll say, do you need space? And then I'll hold my other hand out or do you need a hug? So you can pick any two choices that you think might help your child. So maybe it might be like, do you need a squeeze from your lovey or do you need a sip of like your milk or whatever it is, right? You're holding these two hands out and they can hit, punch, slap, which hand Mm. that they want the answer to be. What this allows is them to non-verbally tell you what they might want, which would probably be more accurate than them finding the words to speak. And it's giving them the permission to have a little extra input and get that aggression out, but it's with your permission. It's not Mm. them like hitting your head or kicking you, right? And I find that this helps kids a lot. It helps if you kind of like talk about this in a neutral time so they understand what you're doing. Mm. But that's kind of what I talk about in the like between phase, right? So you try to provide an environment that is more conducive to their regulation. Sometimes it's lights off. Sometimes that's the first thing I'll do when my daughter's having a meltdown. I'll just turn the lights off, assuming there's like some natural light coming in. It's not pitch dark, but just eliminating extra brightness in the environment, which can help kind of already take the edge off for the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll turn off the TV just for like silence, right? Every kid is going to need something different, 
But typically this is not the time to say like, take deep breaths, Mm -hmm. squeeze your hands together. Let's do heavy work. Like not inserting any sort of directive to them at this moment. Mm -hmm. So you are just going to try to mitigate the environment as best you can. Let them have their feelings safely. One piece that I always differentiate here between this and tantrums is in tantrums, this is usually this phase where you're like validating their feelings, right? Oh, you're so mad. You really wanted the cookie. Extra language and auditory input typically during a meltdown is going to like set them even like escalate them even more. Mm-hmm. And this is the case where my this is where they'll be like, no, I'm not mad or like, no, or stop talking. My That's my favorite one. My daughter's favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Stop talking. Stop saying words. Mm-hmm. She'll say that. And I'm like, so at the very most for my daughter, I will say, I know, or like, I love you. I'm here. Like I'll just very quietly. And like every once in a while, I don't even go. I know you were so angry. You really wanted the milk. So you hit me like that is just not mm-hmm. an appropriate time for that when you're having a, a really meltdown. So I don't really say anything. Mm-hmm. And then once they calm down and you're entering in the after meltdown phase, then after the meltdown, typically not like the minute they stop crying, right? I usually wait. It depends on each kid. I try to have this moment. This is the repair moment. This is the storytelling moment where you narrate what happened. But I try to do it within the same day, but not like when their tears are still wet and they're still like catching their breath, right? Mm-hmm. But close enough so they could still access the memory of the meltdown. Not like, I don't even remember what I cried about two days ago. And this is your storytelling moment. You talk about what happened in a, the neutral way. Like you got really mad. You wanted this to happen. And your body got a little out of control. You were so angry, you lost control and you hit and you did this. And now you're feeling better. And then this is where I would then tie what regulated them. I noticed staying in your room when it was dark seemed like that really helped for you. Hmm. Next time, should I help you go to your room? Like you're starting to pair the regulation piece there so they can hopefully Mm -hmm. later either access it independently Or this is a clue for you to include it in one of those two choices or Mm -hmm. help you before the meltdown, you know, or I noticed you really didn't want mommy next to you. I sat outside your room to make sure you were safe, but I wanted to give you space. And this is so where you can also explain, I may have had to physically pick you up and you didn't like that. I was keeping you safe. This is where you can explain what was happening, Mm -hmm. where in the Mm -hmm. moment they might not like that you had to physically pick them up because they don't like it, right? Yeah. Well, and sometimes because we do have the siblings and depending on the situation or the destruction happening in the bedroom or whatever it is, sometimes mommy will have to pick you up and give you a nice tight bear hug for a moment until we can control our body and narrating that through. And I think that this repair moment you're talking about after the meltdown and sometimes like I am not there yet. Like sometimes the switch can flick so quickly that like, I'm still recovering from the event. And my husband and I talk about this and kind of joke because then it's like you flip the switch and then it's like, oh, we're all hugs and snuggles and we're like still traumatized by what just happened, you know? So I think that we also have to be like in a place of regulation ourselves to really go back into that moment and have that conversation, hey? You're absolutely right. And that's why I talk about it not being directly after. I, In fact, if I'm talking about the moments right after if you imagine you're like on, right? You have this care. I almost call it a character where you have to be on being regulated, ignoring your own needs at that moment. Cause you're holding them close, even though you're like, mm. I got to get dinner started or like, Oh, now I don't get to do this X, Y, Z. As soon as the meltdown ends after the meltdown, that is where I say, this is about the parent and you need to check in with yourself. That's when you can lock yourself in the bathroom for three whole minutes, close your eyes, cry. If you have to cry, get out what you need. Like you are checking in and recentering mm. yourself because you're right. It is in that moment where they're fine mm-hmm. and I'm just now processing what happened. And then I'm angry because then that wasted a whole 45 minutes of my evening when I was going to do this or that. And yes, yeah, so I don't do any of the mm-hmm. repair really in the moment because I'm mentally not there. And sometimes I'm in like the worst. Sometimes I can get through like a 40 minute meltdown, like super calm. But then as soon as it ends, I like switch and I'm like angry and mm-hmm. irritable and annoyed and frustrated. And she's already back and like, oh, mommy, I'm eating at the dinner (laughs) table. And I'm like monotone, really short with her. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Like, yeah, it's taxing. And it's something that like we have to keep in mind. Like 
the end of these tantrums and coming through the other end and like walking out and closing the door and finally getting to bed or whatever it is, is like the moment when we reevaluate all our life's choices and how we ended up here right now. <laughs> who is the adult here and why am I stuck dealing with this? And whose choices brought us to this situation? And, you know, we're like looking for ways that we could have like done differently. Yeah. But we're sitting in the acceptance of like, this is what parenthood looks like for us, you know? Yeah. I would love if wrapping up, you could maybe bust some expectations that we have. Because I feel like we've been dancing around some of them as we've been chatting. But it sounds like it is unrealistic to expect that meltdowns will not happen, especially if you have neurodivergent children. What are some of those other like unrealistic expectations that we might hold? The use of language, it sounds like, in a meltdown is an unrealistic expectation. Yeah, the use of language on like, so the receptive, their understanding the language might be a little bit harder. Like, are you not understanding what I told you? I told Mm. you, like, stop doing that. Like, why are you still doing it? So they're probably not really processing that. And then also the use of their language to be able to accurately tell you like anything at that point. Like, I always talk about it as like, like their fight or flight mode, if our fight or flight mode, or like we're running away from a bear that's like chasing us. And someone was like, Hey, Laura, <laughs> what's nine divided by three? I'd be like, what? Like, what? Like, it's not like, right. it's, a, it's a higher level. But for some kids, accessing that language is a higher level part in that moment. And they're like, I don't even know what you're saying. Like, I can't think right now to like, give you an mm-hmm. accurate response. I might just like blurt something out to tell you to like, mm-hmm. stop talking to me. So it's that same thing. So definitely, I think that's something that we can't always rely on our kids or expect them to do. And then the other part is just really this idea of self-regulation is such a hot topic. Like we expect our kids to know to take deep breaths and to like calm their body down. And like we always talk about our goal is like to have self-regulation skills. We do eventually want them to become more independent, at least in identifying what their body needs. But I don't think it's even within the whole realm of childhood for us to have this ultimate goal of like them to self-soothe or self-regulation because we're like a social species. Like everybody, like for my co-regulation, I will like call my friend Mm. or call my mom or vent to my husband. Sometimes I will like want to like cry to myself, but that's letting out that emotion. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not stopping that part of it, right? Like I either co-regulate with someone else or regulate in a way that allows me to have still that feeling. Yeah. So that's one of the pieces is that like getting away from the self-regulation and more co-regulation and just wanting our kids to at least identify what regulates them. And then Mm -hmm. we can help get them there and like guide them. Yeah. It's unrealistic of us as parents to expect that they're going to like self-regulate all the time or self-regulate independently. Another one that I think we can call out directly is it's an unrealistic expectation to expect that they will have the same capacity like we were talking about in every moment or that we're always going to, just because we've done it, that we'll do it again. Sounds like an unrealistic expectation. So I think that we've like touched on a bunch of these today. And it's important for us to flex our thinking around these things and wrap our mind around it from a parent perspective so that when we do show up in the moment, we're like meeting them where they're at versus having these unrealistic expectations that are sky high that's going to lead to our own meltdown, everybody melting down, you know, in the situation. Yes, exactly. I feel like I could talk to you all day long. Oh my gosh, I'm sure we'll have you back uh, to pick apart other parts of this topic for sure. I would love to. Where can people find your podcast, your resources online? Yes. So I hang out on Instagram all the time at the OT Butterfly. I do have my own podcast. It is called the Sensory Wise Solutions Podcast for parents. And that's the name of my actually my parent program, Sensory Wise Solutions. So I coach parents of kids with sensory sensitivities on how to support them at home through like clothing battles, bath time battles, all of the things that are hard for sensory sensitive kids. I do one-on-one coaching, which you could find at the otbutterfly.com slash parent consult. But if you want a free resource today to get started, I have a couple for you that people listening might resonate with. So one of them is if you think your child has sensory sensitivities and you're curious about that, I have this kind of checklist that you can go through that can guide the way that you think about sensory sensitivities. So you can go to the otbutterfly.com slash checklist. And then my other one is a free download on meltdowns. So again, it is the before, during, after, and between the meltdowns. 
it's a free download that kind of details everything I talked about today and then where you can go from there. And that's at theotbutterfly.com slash meltdowns. And we will make sure to link all of those things in the show notes and in the blog post so that people can easily click through and find you. Oh my goodness. Thank you again so much for your time. This was such a helpful episode today. You're so welcome. I agree. I could talk about this all day, so I'd be happy to come back and do a part two one day. (laughs) Isn't Laura awesome? I really loved getting to know her, and I love the really down-to-earth perspective she brings on this topic. She listed off a number of free resources that she has if you feel like you are parenting a neurodivergent or sensory-sensitive child. And those are all linked at happyasamother.co slash podcast for you to find. If you find in these moments, you have a hard time regulating yourself and you don't know how to maybe regulate or control your own anxiety or your own sensory sensitivity, such as noise being triggering or irritating, I encourage you to check out our wellness center, happyasamother.co slash wellness where our therapist will be able to work with you on learning how to reset your nervous system and more effectively manage these really tough moments in parenting. To learn more about our wellness center, head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. Next week, Larissa Jalaris of episode 73, The Overstimulated Mummy, our most popular episode to date, is joining us on the show to talk about managing noise in parenthood. Larissa is an OT and has taken her specialty and applied it to parenting to help us better manage with all of these sensory overload and overstimulation in parenthood. You don't want to miss this episode. I'll see you back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.